Well, Pastor Rock is over at Fellowship 412 celebrating that open house service with them. And uh, I just want to say thank you for your part in making that happen. And thank you for your support of the Next Gen Faith campaign that allowed this open house to happen. Just this week, we, we saw that the uh, donations toward your pledges on the Next Gen Faith campaign just exceeded $2 million in just over nine months. And I just, I just want to applaud you. Thank you for your generosity to that work. And doing it while still supporting all of the ministries of the church. It really is a testimony, church. Well, let's look to the word together. <clears throat> Jerusalem, it's the city of David and the city of peace. It provided the setting for an entire week of historic events in the life of our Savior leading up to his Easter resurrection. But why is that first Palm Sunday approach had Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem? Why that particular city? Why not Rome, without question the most prominent city of Jesus' day? Well, the story which we'll follow both today and next week will help us answer that question by taking us back to a day in the life of ancient Jerusalem a thousand years before Christ. Perhaps it will help us to think of our study like the latest in an endless series of Star Wars movies. It's a, it's a prequel. Let's take a look back in time to help us better understand why Jerusalem figures so prominently in the Easter story. And if Jerusalem provides the setting or the, the place for our story today, it's accompanied by two other prominent characters. One a person, Israel's greatest king, David, and the other a thing. Not an ordinary thing, mind you, but a thing that represented the presence of God in the midst of his people. A thing from above which Moses had heard the voice of God speaking to him. A holy thing that to the discerning points forward to Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross in my place and in your place. Of course, the thing I'm speaking of had once been the lone resident of that sacred place, the Holy of Holies, in the original tabernacle. It was the Ark of the Covenant lost now to history, but not to the imagination, as Harrison Ford's successful film franchise bearing its name will attest. And as our prequel opens, the ark had been 70 years neglected by God's people. In still an earlier day, Israel had foolishly carried it into battle against their mortal enemies, the neighboring Philistines. They regarded the ark as something of a national good luck charm that would certainly bring victory. But the God of all creation will not be so trivialized and used by any person or nation state, not today and not 3,000 years ago either. So the battle was lost, and the ark captured and taken to a Philistine city. But its new captors were soon beset by calamity and disease, so they packed up the ark, postmark, returned to sender on a new cart, and they sent it away. And eventually it found its way to the house of an Israeli man named Abinadab, where it languished in obscurity 
throughout the reign of Israel's weak-spirited King Saul. And so today, as we pick up the story, Saul's successor, Israel's new king, David, was preparing to bring the Ark of the Covenant to a city he had only recently won in battle and declared his new capital, Jerusalem. Now, our story has two parts. In part one, David's good intention to bring the long-neglected Ark back into the center of Israel's spiritual life, it became the backdrop for an epic fail. Fortunately for David, however, the second part of the story ends on a better note. So turn with me today to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6. Today we'll unpack part one of the story, reading from the first ten verses of 2 Samuel 6, and, and then next week we'll look at part two and learn the rest of the story. 2 Samuel 6, would you take your Bibles and read with me, starting in verse 1. David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. That is the angels that were made from gold that graced the covering of the ark known as the mercy seat. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the cart, or before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand, hand to the ark of God, I'm sorry, and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there before the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And, and that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means the bursting forth upon Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of God, the Lord, come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Study of our, the title of our study today is God's Work, God's Way. Would you join your hearts with mine in prayer? Heavenly Fathers, we come to this time in your word. Lord, we pray that you would use your word to change each one of us. Pray that your spirit would take my words, Lord, but communicate your words to the hearts of each of your people. That, God, we might be better equipped to serve you as we leave this place today. That's our prayer, and we pray it in the matchless name of our Savior, in Jesus' name. All God's people say it. And as we come to this study in God's word, may the Lord be with you. Have you ever thought you were doing a good thing? Even a God-honoring thing? Only to put it in motion and then watch in horror as the wheels came off? 
Maybe you sense God leading you down a specific path or, or into a certain relationship, and then wham! Oh, I didn't see that coming. Has the fruit of your good intentions ever spoiled like just so many sliced bananas on a hot summer day? If so, know that you're in good company. For our text today records just such a day in the life of a godly man, a man after God's own heart. That's how the scriptures describe him. And David was not merely a godly man, but one who thought he was doing a godly thing, restoring the abandoned Ark of the Covenant to its proper place at the heart of worship in Israel. Now know that as this story began, King David was on a roll. He had recently avoided a civil war and united the 12 tribes of Israel under his leadership. He had beaten Israel's bitter enemy, the Philistines, not, not in one, but in two straight battles that effectively brought an end to their long history of harassment. And he had just captured a fortress city, thought to be unconquerable, that had for centuries had for centuries persisted as a pagan stronghold right in the midst of Israel's own territory. That stronghold was the Canaanite city of Jebus. But from this point forward, it would forever be remembered as the city of David, Jerusalem, Israel's new capital. David longed to make Jerusalem not only the political capital of the realm, but its spiritual capital as well. For he knew that at his best, Israel's earthly king was but a vice-regent of its heavenly king. And so his plan was to make a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant in the heart of Jerusalem. Noble intentions, God-honoring intentions. What could possibly go wrong? Well, as we'll see, just about everything. A parallel passage in Scripture in 1 Chronicles 13 tells us the first thing David did was consult with all the leaders in Israel. Hey, folks, I, I, think, we should bring to the, I think we should bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. Don't you think that's a swell idea? Swell, swell idea. I guess I'm dating myself there. Uh, <laughs> that's like leave it to beaver old. <laughs> Gee, Wally, what a swell idea. Uh, <laughs> 1 Chronicles 13 goes on to say, All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Now, time and again, the scriptures tell us that David consulted the Lord before making significant decisions, but not this time. And this omission reminds us that there's no substitute for talking to God about important decisions in our lives. Positive intentions and popular support can't replace a humble posture of prayer that bows to the will of God. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. George Mueller, a mighty man of faith in 19th century England, cared for thousands of orphans in homes supported solely by prayer to a God who's gone on record about his care for widows and orphans. Mueller was often asked, how he knew the will of God. I seek at the beginning, he said, to get my heart in such, into such a state that it has no will of its own regarding a given matter. Nine-tenths of the trouble with people is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. 
when one is truly in this state, it's usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. Well, maybe David's intentions concerning the ark were pure as the driven snow. We can't know for sure. But it's not hard to imagine his judgment being clouded by the political benefit of having all Israel drawn to his new capital to worship. Perhaps at that moment he was more motivated in his heart of hearts to unify his divided nation than to glorify his neglected God. We can't say for sure, but maybe that's why he consulted the people and not God. But as we'll see, what David failed to do in this first effort, consulting God first, he certainly corrected in next week's do-over. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6. The operative word for our study today is first. Don't ask God to bless the journey only if after your ship has set sail. Don't exhaust every known option and only then turn to him to heal your body. Don't make a hash of things on your own and then and only then ask him to bail you out of the frying pan. If you seek to do God's work, seek him first. Had David first sought the Lord, he would have easily avoided his second mistake. For God's instructions were quite clear concerning how the ark was to be carried. It was to be carried only by members of one of Israel's 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi. The Levites had been set apart specifically at God's command to care for the sacred things, including the most sacred thing, the ark. It was to be carried on poles that fit through golden rings that had been carefully molded into the ark's frame for that purpose. And those poles were to be supported on the shoulders of Levites assigned to the sacred duty of bearing the ark. And in this manner, the ark had been carried throughout 40 years of Exodus wanderings. In this, Mary, in this manner, it had been carried around the city of Jericho until the walls came tumbling down. In this manner, the ark had been carried throughout the promised land. So if David's intent was to lead a restoration of appropriate reverence and worship of God within his nation, he started in a most curious way. You see, ignoring the commands of Scripture concerning the ark and its transport, David led the procession carrying the ark to Jerusalem, quote, on a new cart. No Levites, no poles borne on shoulders over the 26-mile journey. Apparently for David, the new day called for a new cart to deliver the symbolic earthly throne of God to its new home in Jerusalem. Now the choice of a new cart as David's transportation mode of choice for the ark is rich in irony. Only once before does the scripture record an instance of the ark being hauled on a new cart. And in that case, it was the Philistines who packed the ark on a new cart and entrusted two milk cows with the task of hauling the troublesome box back to Israel. The King David 
would adopt the practice of the Philistines on this, the most spiritually significant day of his reign, was indeed troubling. But we needn't be too harsh. For in our day, too, we often think that we know better than God or we can improve upon his ways. And so we try to carry the gospel on the world's new cart. Church, the world has a new cart to help us be more loving, loving and tolerant and inclusive than those rubes who actually follow the Bible. And it has a new cart for the woke at the Church of Social Justice when the Lord has called us to unity as the church of Jesus Christ charged to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. Why, the world even has a pair of new carts, just like those Philistine carts, to help us carry the gospel in, in different directions, even as both claim to be on the right side of every political issue of the day. The first cart comes conveniently hitched to an elephant, the second to a donkey. Unfortunately, neither stops to recognize the lamb who said, the way people will know you are my disciples is by the love you have for one another. Amen. Years ago, I remember taking a seminary class where we studied the best new ways to grow churches. You see, the latest research of that time had indicated that churches grew best in an environment where all of the attendees were pretty much the same, same ethnicity, same economic status, same cultural background. Grow your churches as homogenous units was the sage advice. Pick a niche and market your church's message, style, and culture to reach that niche. It's a very Madison Avenue-like approach to church growth, and it seemed to be getting the best results in practice. But as a Jesus follower just studying the scriptures in seminary, that practice looks suspiciously to me like one of the Philistines' new cards. You see, it didn't reflect the churches the Apostle Paul planted, where Jew and Gentile, slave and free, were all encouraged to become one under the banner of Christ. And it didn't reflect the church in heaven I read about, where the faithful of every people, tribe, and tongue reunited in worship. Can I tell you that one of the greatest privileges of my life is to have been here at ACAC, along for the ride, as the Holy Spirit has grown this community of faith over the last three decades from, from a small collection of graying Caucasian suburbanites, all of whom look a lot like I do now, into a vibrant and much larger church of young and old and rich and poor and urban and suburban and black, white, Asian, Latino into a church the likes of which was never supposed to grow, according to the latest research. Brothers and sisters, I'm not advocating that we bury our heads in the sand and feign deaf to the culture around us, nor am I suggesting that we ignore the best practices and ideas of others both those in the world and the church. On the contrary, if best practices don't run contrary to Scripture or the leading of God's Spirit, let's use them. And as Christians, we should be very aware of the surrounding culture, for doing so helps us fulfill the commandment to love our neighbor 
and better positions us to communicate God's life-changing truth to those around us. But we must be aware that in this world there will be the ever-present temptation to carry our faith on a new cart like the Philistines rather than on the shoulders of the faithful as prescribed in God's word. Church, the world has no shortage of new carts for God's people to take on a test drive. So let the buyer beware. Well, if David's first strike was neglecting to seek God first, his second was carrying God's ark on the world's new cart. The count was no balls and two strikes. And the stage was set for a mighty strikeout to follow. Not that any of David's 30,000 civic leaders and the king himself were mindful of that fact. Rather, they were in full celebration mode. But the celebration was short-lived. For strike three came in the form of a seemingly innocuous everyday event. While en route to Jerusalem, the oxen stumbled, and a man named Uzzah, who along with his brother was driving the cart, reached out to steady the ark. Presumably, he did so innocently to, to keep it from sliding or even falling off the cart. Regardless, his mistake of touching the ark was fatal. And the tragedy of Uzzah's sudden death brought a quick end to the extravagant party. What was to have been a great day in the spiritual history of Israel concluded as a big dud. The ark was shuffled off to the home of a local resident named Obadidim, a Levite, and the crowds all returned home. Meanwhile, David sulked back to Jerusalem, both afraid and angry. How can I bring the ark of God to me, he asked, fearful of the calamity it might cause inside the walls of Jerusalem. And angry, most likely, that God had acted in such an unpredictable and capricious way as to, as to rain havoc upon all of his good intentions and his good reputation as a leader. If we're honest, we can probably relate to David's disillusionment. I mean, Uzzah seems like a good guy who, in, in touching the ark, was only trying to do right by it. And for that, God struck him down? Sure reads like God might have been having a bad day, doesn't it? But remember, the commands of Scripture concerning the ark were clear and unambiguous. It was not to be touched or even looked upon by its caretakers, the Levites, lest they die, Numbers 4. With the exceptions of the priests who covered it with layers of fabric for transit, only once a year did any person dare approach the ark. That person was the high priest, and that day was the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. On that day alone, the high priest would be permitted to enter the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle to sprinkle blood, the blood of the sin sacrifice, upon the mercy seat covering the ark. The purpose of this annual event was to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, atonement is a very religious-sounding word. What does it mean? Well, maybe the best way to understand it is to break the larger word down 
into its parts. Atonement, at one Atonement is the state of being at one or reconciled with a holy God. But that reconciliation is accomplished by means of a sacrifice that satisfies all outstanding offenses. So on the annual day of atonement, the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat covering the ark acknowledged the grave offense of sins committed before a holy God. The wages of sin is death, the scriptures say, and there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. So the appropriate blood sacrifice was offered by the high priest to satisfy the the offenses of sins committed by all God's people and secure at-one-ment or reconciliation with God. This offering before the ark on the Day of Atonement was sacred business. It was serious business. As a side note, it may interest you to know that an ancient Jewish tradition not found in Scripture indicates that the high priest would would wear a rope tied around his waist on the one end with the other end out behind the curtain leading to the Holy of Holies. The the purpose of the rope was to allow others to drag out his corpse should he approach a holy God with an unworthy sacrifice for sin. Bottom line, the holiness of God is not a thing to be trifled with, not then and not now. Of course, from our vantage on this side of the cross, we can look back and see Yom Kippur as a vivid picture of Christ's death at Calvary, as the worthy sacrifice for our sins. The presentation of his blood at the heavenly mercy seat is a once-for-all satisfaction for our offenses, according to the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 9.12. So armed with that understanding, let's return to our question. Was God just having a bad day? leaving poor Uzzah as the unlucky stiff who just happened to draw the short straw. Of course, the pragmatist might say, if you hadn't put the new ark on, uh, if you hadn't put the cart on that new ark in the first place, none of this would have happened. Actually, I said that to my kids in that tone every once in a while. Maybe you have too. And that's true enough, but isn't there something deeper going on here? Wasn't all Israel's understanding of the holiness of God and the gravity of sin the principle at stake? Brothers and sisters, I believe the lesson of Uzzah's demise is just this. As sinners in need of mercy and grace, we dare not approach the presence of a holy God without an appropriate covering for our sin. David thought his good intentions would suffice. He was wrong. Uzzah presumed his good work of saving the ark from danger would be welcomed. He was wrong. Good intentions and good work will never satisfy a God who refuses to dwell with sin. Psalm 5, verse 4. And anyone who would do God's work must come to terms with this spiritual reality. As Christians, we understand God's way to do his work 
is to come by faith under the covering of Christ's shed blood. And then to daily take up our cross, dying to self and following him. There's no other way. And if our work for God is to stand the test of eternity, we would do well to have that work birth first in a spirit of prayer. Second, to be sustained not by the ways of the world and their new carts, but in accordance with his word. And third, to be ever mindful of the holiness of God and the gravity of sin. Well, part one of this story is a Debbie Downer. But the scriptures are honest. And we can learn from David's mistakes that good intentions and noble plans aren't enough on their own. We need to humbly do God's work God's way. Well, will the king find his groove again in next week's part two? Stay tuned. Same bat time, same bat channel. Actually, it's a different bat time because of the marathon. Check your bulletin for that. <laughs> but that's okay. Church, would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you first and foremost for the atonement, for the atonement available to us through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his shed blood on our behalf. And Lord, under that covering, as we daily take up our cross to follow you, Lord, would you help us to do your work your way? Would you help us to seek you first? Bring those decisions before your throne to seek you first. Lord, would you help us to know the world's new carts versus your commands and your leading. Lord, help us to do God's work, God's way. And we give you thanks today for the opportunity to worship you, spend time in your word. And all God's people say it. Amen. Amen.